0: Good morning everyone. This is your host Muhammad Haliba and welcome to another episode. What is the imaging features of hepatic cyst, hepatic hemangioma and hepatic metastasis on T2 MRI of the liver? We start with the cyst. The cyst should be T2 bright with similar intensity to the CSF fluid. The hemangioma is additionally T2 bright but less extent than the cyst as we would expect. And finally, hepatic metastasis is typically T2 bright, but less so than the hemangioma or the cyst. Again, cyst is as bright as CSF, hemangioma is less bright than a cyst, and a metastasis is less bright than a hemangioma. What is Personage-Turner syndrome, this is acute brachial neuritis and not to be confused with Paget-Schroeder's disease, which is axillary or subclavian vein thrombosis due to excessive motion of the arm. Personage-Turner syndrome is acute sudden uh, shoulder pain with progressive weakness. This is typically idiopathic. Again, personage Turner syndrome is acute brachial neuritis. Paget-Schroeder disease is effort-induced thrombosis of the axillary and subclavian veins. Imaging features of oncocytoma. This is a homogeneously enhancing mass, slightly less enhancing than the renal cortex with central scar. You could never diagnose it on imaging, and this is a pathological diagnosis because this mass has very similar features to RCC and should be resected again. Oncocytoma, you could never differentiate it from RCC on imaging alone, and it appears as homogeneously enhancing uh, mass, slightly less enhancing than the renal cortex with central scar. The thyroiditis. This is a focal, ill-defined hypoechoic area within the thyroid, with or without increased vascularity, that progresses on serial examination. Typically present with fever and increased white blood count. Again, the Quervain thyroiditis: focal, ill-defined hypoechoic area within the thyroid, with or without increased vascularity, that progresses on serial examination, and presents with fever and increased white blood count. Graves disease is diffuse hypoechoic heterogeneous parenchyma with excessive increased vascularity or known as the thyroid inferno sign. Again, Graves' disease, the hallmark is the thyroid inferno sign or very, very vascular thyroid gland. Thyroid lymphoma or thyroid non-Hodgkin lymphoma. This is diffuse or focal hypoechoic thyroid parenchyma. The key differentiating factor is extrathyroid spread so we'll see lymphadenopathy adjacent to the thyroid and this is typically seen in patients with chronic Hashimoto thyroiditis again thyroid lymphoma is can be focal or diffuse hypochoic parenchyma with extra nodal or extra thyroid spread what is neuroblastoma stage 4s this is neuroblastoma involving the skin liver bone marrow less than one year old. Again, it's important to know that neuroblastoma stage 4S involves the bone marrow, not the cortex, because uh, usually uh, 4S has an excellent prognosis as compared to all other uh, stages of neuroblastoma. And so if it involves the bone causing the lytic lesions, that's a completely different stage. The bone marrow is the good prognostic indicator. So again, neuroblastoma stage 4S is skin, liver, and bone marrow in typical patient is less than one year old. Common metastatic site for Wilms tumor, Wilms to lung, and I think Wilms has a L, and so L in Wilms is for the lungs. Neuroblastoma, blastoma, I say neuro, and B-blastoma metastasizes to bone, and phylloides Tumor also typically metastasizes to bone due to hematogenous spread. Typically, breast cancer is a lymphatic metastasis and goes initially to axillary lymph nodes, but phylloides metastasizes to bone if it becomes uh, metastatic. Again, Wilms' tumor metastasizes to lung, neuroblastoma to bone, phylloides to bone. Pulmonary complications that arise in the setting of cirrhosis. We have hepatopulmonary syndrome, hepatic hydrothorax, and portopulmonary hypertension. Hepatopulmonary syndrome is one of the most common of these three, and it is progressive dyspnea that that require oxygen and potentially liver transplant for treatment. Hepatic hydrothorax is recurrent, typically right-sided pleural effusions, and portopulmonary hypertension, as it sounds, it's pulmonary hypertension, which causes right-sided heart failure. This is not reversible by liver transplant, obviously because the pathology is right heart failure. Again, pulmonary complication in the setting of cirrhosis include hepatic hydrothorax, pulmonary hypertension, and hepatopulmonary syndrome. Benign spinal mass composed of cells that are similar to or embryologically similar to skin and appendages such as hair follicles sweat glands and sebaceous glands that is a spinal dermoid again spinal dermoid obviously we know what a dermoid is composed of so skin and hair follicles and sweat glands in the uh, spinal mass so again spinal mass this is not in the spine usually causes compression into the spine it's not a primary cns process so it's composed of uh, skin tissue and it causes mass effect on the spine. It's a spinal dermoid. What is the common etiology for hepatic pyogenic abscess in adults? Typically, it's E. coli. What about children? It's staphylococcus aureus. Again, so staph A in children and E. coli in adults. Are the pathogens associated with hepatic pyogenic abscess? What is lateral patellar dislocation or traumatic lateral patellar dislocation this is when the patella is forced laterally uh, dislocating obviously when we see it in imaging typically the patella is aligned normally but what we see we see bone marrow edema along the lateral femoral condyle and the medial patellar facet again lateral patellar dislocation when we see it on imaging it has been relocated to its normal position but we see the uh, bone marrow edema, and the lateral femoral condyle, and the medial, medial patellar facet. And this is associated with medial retractum disruption. So again, this is associated with medial retinaculum disruption. Key feature for rock bottom foot or congenital vertical talus. Really, it's the vertical talus. So the talus would lay vertically, almost in plane. The long plane of the talus is similar to the tibia or fibula, and we have equinous and dorsally dislocated navicular. I would say the key learning point for rocker bottom foot is that the talus is vertical or the long axis of the talus is similar to the tibia and fibula. So congenital vertical talus, same as the rocker bottom foot. What is retroperitoneal fibrosis? This is an inflammatory disorder associated with increased fibrotic deposition in the retroperitoneal. Typically, or on exams, would present with urethral obstruction. And what they try to get at to is to distinguish it from retroperitoneal adenopathy. In retroperitoneal adenopathy we will see elevation of the aorta off of the spine. In retroperitoneal fibrosis, we would not see that. It is associated, as we said, with urinary obstruction and IgG4. Again, retroperitoneal fibrosis would cause obstruction and does not elevate the spine, uh, the aorta off of the spine. Rather, it would be going around or circumferential to the aorta where retroperitoneal fi- uh, adenopathy would elevate the aorta off of the spine. What is fibrolamellular carcinoma? This is a subtype of HCC that occurs in young patients without history of cirrhosis. Tumor tend to be large at diagnosis, uh, but generally has better prognosis than HCC or classic HCC. AFP is not typically elevated, and there is no capsule. MRI features a heterogeneous mass with fibrotic central scar almost every, uh, you know, benign lesion in the liver seems to have a scar but just to summarize the lesions that we know have a scar we have focal nodular hyperplasia is known to have the scar hemangioma can have scars if they have cystic degeneration in the center and finally fibrolamellar carcinoma is have a cal- characteristic scar and it's a truly a scar compared to the fibro. Uh, focal nodular hyperplasia, which the scar is actually T2 hyper intense and enhances late. The scar in fibrolamellar carcinoma is a true scar and it's T1 and T2 dark. Again, fibrolamellar carcinoma, the scar is characteristics because it's T1 and T2 dark. It's a large mass in young adults without elevated AFP and has better prognosis than HCC or classic HCC because it is a type of HCC. Swatchman-Diamond syndrome, again, Swatchman-Diamond syndrome, this is a pediatric syndrome typically associated with three things, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, hematologic abnormalities with neutropenia, and predisposition to leukemia. Again, Swatchman-Diamond syndrome associated with exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, hematologic abnormalities with neutropenia, and predisposition to leukemia. What bones form the form the ulnar side of the rest. Again, what bones form the ulnar side of the rest? What we have the hamate, pisiform, triquetrum, and lunate. These are the bones typically on the ulnar side of the rest. Not typically, these are the bones on the ulnar side of the rest. Again, hamate, pisiform, triquitrum, and lunate form the bones of the rest. The pisiform is palmar, or on the palmar side, and the triquetrum is on the dorsal side of the rest. Again, hamate, pisiform, triquetrum and lunate. What is nematosis cystoides intestinalis? So again, nematosis cystoides intestinalis is a rare benign condition where we have air-containing cysts in the submucosa or serosa of the left colon. Again, nematosis cystoides intestinalis, a rare condition with uh, benign condition with air cyst in the submucosa and serosa of the left colon. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about correction of left hypoplastic heart and the Norwood procedure. We said that the Norwood procedure is split into three stages, stage one, stage two, and stage three. Now, this is Again, the Norwoods procedure is trying to correct hypoplastic left heart where there isn't really much of a left ventricular cavity. We said in Norwoods stage one, what we do, the goal is to make sure that the right ventricle supplies the systemic circuit and we do a couple of things. One, we move the aorta or the origin of the aorta from the hypoplastic left ventricle into the right ventricle. So we lost the pulmonary artery at this stage. There is no arterial supply. The same procedure. We also excise the intraarterial septum. So we. The goal is to create a single atrium. So single atrium and diverting the blood, the aorta from the left ventricle into the right ventricle. We then excise the PDA because the PDA will eventually close, and we do not want to maintain the pulmonary circuit through something that can close we still don't have a blood supply into the pulmonary circuit because we excite the pulmonary artery when we switched the aorta into the right ventricle. That stage, the same procedure at stage one, we create a modified tosing shunt. What it is, it's a way to supply the pulmonary circuit and we create a temporary shunt or graft between the right subclavian artery, which is the first branch off of the aortic arch into the Pulmonary artery, typically the right pulmonary artery, which is the closest to the uh, right subclavian artery. So again, this is stage one. In summary, we divert all the blood flow from the right ventricle into the aorta. We excise the intraatrial septum, creating a single atrium. We excise the PDA and we create a modified balloch shunt, which shunts the which supplies the pulmonary circuit of blood from the aortic. Through the subclavian artery into the pulmonary artery. Now, the next stage, or stage two of the Norwood procedure, is the creation of a bidirectional glenn shunt. Now, as the pulmonary resistance has fallen after birth, we start, we're able to connect the SVC into the pulmonary artery directly. Now, we can't do it in the beginning because the pulmonary resistance is high immediately after birth. So, we do the arterial supply into the pulmonary circuit. As the resistance falls down, we're able to connect the SVC into the pulmonary artery. So, the SVC will empty into the pulmonary artery, giving the lungs a deoxygenated blood, and we excise the modified tossing shunt that we previously created. And this is Norwood Stage 2. Again, it's done when the pulmonary circuit resistance has fallen to normal levels and re- it is able to take blood from the SVC. If it's still high pulmonary resistance, let's say the uh, pulmonary pressure is at 10, it's not going to be able to draw blood from the SVC because the pressure of the SVC is around 1 or 1 to 3 uh, millimeter. Mercury. So, once the pulmonary resistance falls down, we're able to uh, divert the SVC into the pulmonary artery, which supplies the uh, pulmonary circuit, and then blood will come back normally into the single atrium that we have. So, through the pulmonary veins, it will drain into the single atrium. Also, we have the IVC remaining to drain into this single atrium. In stage three Norwood procedure, all we do is similarly to the creation of the bidirectional Glenn shunt into the uh, into the pulmonary circuit, we also connect the IVC into that pulmonary circuit. It's called bidirectional because it goes to both pulmonary arteries, meaning right and left, even though it's connected to the right. Anyway, so Norwood procedure is three-stage procedure for the treatment of hypoplastic left heart. To summarize, we di- divert the aorta from the normal left ventricle into the uh, right ventricle, which is now supplying the systemic circuit. We excise the intraatrial septum. We excise the PDA. We create a modified bla- uh, blalock tossing shunt, which is a tubing between the SVC, uh, sorry, subclavian artery into the pulmonary artery. Once the pulmonary resistance falls down, we do stage two of the Norwood procedure, which is connecting the SVC or superior vena cava into the pulmonary artery. And we excise the previously created black shunt. And finally, in stage three, we complete the procedure by connecting the IVC into the pulmonary artery as well.